0: guys it has been over 36 hours now since federal agents first confronted a heavily armed religious cult near Waco the cult actually called or known as the branch Davidians is an offshoot of the seventh-day Adventist Church the marshals moved in in force tonight we say marshals were're not really sure what kind of agents they are we know for sure that they are federal agents of some sort
1: Waco Texas. 1993. Global media is holding the world spellbound during a 51-day siege. They're spinning the tale of a deranged cult leader, David Koresh, and his crazed followers surrounded by armed agents from the FBI and the ATF. The siege culminates in a fiery blaze where the entire compound is burnt to the ground, with 76 men, women and children perishing on the Texas Plains the media and authorities said Waco was a mass suicide and the world believed them. What really happened? People know they've not told the whole truth. Shine presents Waco the Inside Story, a podcast series featuring Waco survivor David Thibodeau. My name is Julian Knoll, and along with Andre Raul, we ask, what have we learned since 1993? Could Waco happen again? Today, we meet Stuart A. Wright, who is a Professor of Sociology and Chair of the Department of Sociology, Social Work and Criminal Justice at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. Stuart has served as a legal expert in several high-profile trials in the United States. He is the author of Armageddon at Waco and several other books and articles about Waco he has always challenged the government's position. He refers to Waco as a government massacre. His research shows the many mistakes the government made that they tried to cover up. This is his story.
2: Stuart is a scholar. He was hired by the government, as my understanding, to do critical analysis of what happened with the, uh, the Branch Davidian um, debacle, if you will, back in 93. And from my understanding, they were not happy with many of his writings whatsoever which is why uh, I consider him a friend of mine.
0: So I wasn't hired by the government. Uh, I was actually hired um, by defense attorneys uh, in the beginning in the criminal trial in 94, and then um, later worked uh, on the civil trial also by, with, with civil attorneys. And then I worked with con- uh, congressional subcommittees um, when we were working on the, uh, uh, the congressional investigation in uh, 95. I was never hired by the government. Okay. Uh, I, I, I did get hired by the government in the Oklahoma City bombing trial as their Waco expert, and I got paid by the government because uh, Tim McVeigh was indigent and uh, had to have a defense uh, attorney appointed by the Department of Justice, and so I worked for uh, the defense attorney in, in, uh, who defended Tim McVeigh, who blew up the Murrah Building on the second anniversary. Of the Waco assault remember the FBI assault in Waco yeah so that that may be where you're getting mixed up but that's work did you gentlemen hear him
2: okay
1: yes Stuart just want to check in with you are you okay if we record this sure great brilliant Um, and just to give you some context um, we're creating a, a podcast series um, and really, the intent and the idea behind the podcast series is really to give the insight and the view of the people who were directly affected within um, within the actual uh, Waco experience. So, really, David's story uh, and Heather's story and other people um, who are survivors. That there's been so much in the media um, about this, and it continues to be a sore in the history of. Of America, and it continues to confound, um, frustrate, uh, intrigue, and interest people. You know, around the world, people remember this. Um, and my sense is there's something that needs to be put right um, about this. And my particular bent really is simply to um, share the story of the people who were directly affected. So I, I don't, I, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight about who was right and who was wrong. But what I am keenly, keenly committed to is uh, that their story be told, uh, unfiltered, um, without without too much of a, uh, you know, a kind of editorial input from myself and, and or Andre. And, uh, yeah, we consider ourselves very privileged to be having this conversation with you. So thank you so much for um Joining us and 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 offering in, you know
3: in uh, into this, Andre, is there anything you'd like to say, mate? Thank you very much for for, for joining us. As, as Jules had said, he doesn't really have uh, a position necessarily. Um, where, where do where do you sit on it? Where do you and if we go back to uh, your first experience with Congress, how how did you? Did anything change for you during that process, and, and even the relationship, even though you weren't hired by the government at that point? Uh, how did you did that change your perception of um, of government as well? So um,
0: uh, my first uh, publication on on Rico was a book that i brought together 12 or 15 different scholars um it's an edited volume it's called armageddon and waco critical perspectives on <laughs> the branch and conflict and we were challenging the government's interpretation of, of just, uh, what happened at waco i thought that um um that they were uh i thought they made a lot of uh, uh, uh bad choices and mistakes and then tried to cover up um, uh, their mistakes. And so uh, it was uh, quite a bit of energy focused on trying to set the historical record straight. And I, I would say that in the 20 or 25 years that I continued to write and publish on Waco, that's, that's been my motive is to, to set the historical
3: record straight. How do you feel like that process is going for you? I I I, I think <laughs> it's it's uh,
0: it's a difficult battle. It's a challenge, um, and some of it is all tied up in politics and, and cultural wars and and those kinds of things. And it's hard to extricate um, the uh, the facts from uh, that 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 context, if you will
3: do, you, do you, in terms of this bigger context that you're talking about the culture wars the the politics at the moment do you feel like is the context changing are we are we entering a point where people are more conscious of media manipulation and the way that history can be and be kind of uh, constructed
0: well let, let, let me make two points here um, and that might clarify what I'm trying to say so um you know, politically I'm, I'm, I'm liberal. I'm a, a left, uh, of center, uh, politics. Um, and yet, um, because the, uh, the particular, uh, administration, um, the Clinton administration that w- was in the white house in power at the time that initiated, um, Uh, both the ATF raid and the FBI operation in Waco. um, I found myself working uh, in the congressional investigations with Republicans, right? I've never even voted for a Republican. I'll never, I'll never vote for a Republican. I'll, I'll go to my death bed before I'll vote for a Republican. And yet they were on the right side of this issue, but their motivation was wrong. They were just trying to take down Clinton And and the Clinton administration, that was their main motive. I don't know that they really had um, – they they certainly didn't have a pure motive. But I found myself working with Republicans because they were on the right side of the issue, maybe for the wrong reasons, but the right side of the issue. So that was a strange experience. Um, um, But uh, that's what I mean when caught up in the culture wars. uh, and so Waco became this um, kind of flag for uh, super conservatives and Republicans in, in here. And um, the Democrats and the liberals um, gravitated towards the other side um, in this sort of anti-cultism. Um, and it was really unfortunate because my whole uh, argument was that it was a civil liberties argument. In fact, the ACLU here, which I've been a lifetime member was completely silent on Waco, you know, and I kept saying, "Where's the ACLU on this, right?" I'm um, Stuart. Can you tell us what the ACLU is? Uh, American Civil Liberties Union. It's a very powerful um, uh, organization, national organization, made up of, of, of people who support uh, civil liberties. And you have a minority group here who was attacked by the government. Um, their rights were were uh, violated uh, egregiously. And, and, and complete silence uh, uh, by the ACLU, um, which was pretty surprising.
2: I was surprised at that as well. And also not only the ACLU, but the lack of um, uh, any of the organizations, Amnesty International, not, not many federally funded organizations came forward with any information or, or, or talked about Waco. Um, they, they, they definitely weren't screaming from the rooftops, that's for sure. There were nowhere to
0: be. We didn't didn't have any institutional allies that we could that we could uh, mobilize on our behalf. Hmm. It's been a difficult climb up the mountain uh, to to try to get people to recognize um, uh, this this huge government overreach. And 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 as I said in uh, my uh, uh, the published piece in in uh, terrorism and political violence, I referred to it as a government massacre. So I tried not to mince words. I, I t- I've taken a lot of criticism for that, but I, I'll stand by what I wrote.
1: So you mentioned earlier about the mistakes that were made and then the cover-ups. What do you see as the major mistakes and how did they try to cover it up?
0: All right, so um, uh, soon after this this whole debacle um, ended, I, uh, I, I spent several months trying to get a hold of, um, of how the FBI hostage rescue team, their counterterrorism unit, conducts crisis negotiations with a, a group in, a, in the middle of a, a barricade or standoff like that. I wanted. I was thinking maybe they just didn't have very good research, they didn't have uh, access to uh, the, the sociology and psychology and communications research would, which would inform uh, how they carried out these, these uh, crisis negotiations. Um, so when I finally got a hold of, uh, of the materials that they actually used to train um, hostage negotiators or crisis negotiators around the world at Quantico, I was stunned, it was actually very good. It was, it was well grounded in sociological and psychological and communications research. Here's the problem guys, they didn't use it at Waco. They tossed it. They tossed the book out, and 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 basically operated it the way they wanted to operate. So, uh, if you if you read that article, I've identified 16 violations of their own protocols, <laughs> of their own guidelines for how to carry out a hostage barricade incident. And so, if if they violated one or two, you could say, well, th- this is an accident or uh, they made mistakes. You can't say they had they made systematically. 16 or, or more uh, fundamental errors in how they carried out this this, uh, uh, this, this crisis negotiations uh, this standoff. So the only conclusion that you could come to and I, and I try to push the readers to this conclusion, the only conclusion you can come to is that this was deliberate and intentional, and they intended to take this group down
1: Wow. wow so what 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 fuels you Stuart, to stay involved 26 years after the incident
0: well i I invested a lot of energy and time in in the uh in early years and after a while it's just kind of momentum uh because you build up this this huge uh base Of of research and and, and knowledge Um, and I I can't tell you how many times I get requests to to do interviews still or or write or make presentations and talk about Waco so it has a life of its own after a while Um, and uh, it it really sort of launched my career too I mean I think um, uh, Waco turned into Oklahoma City, and then Oklahoma City turned into some other issues for me, and, and um, so I've been um, on this train, if you will, for 25, 26 years. So, i
1: still want to come back to the same question. What, what, what fuels you? It sounds to me like you're trying to redress something, or you're trying to put something right. What is it that
0: you see um, is the essence of your work around this? Uh, e- egregious government overreach, um, the uh, militarization of law enforcement, which I think uh, contributed largely to this. Um, I've written about that extensively. Um, uh, this was a paramilitary operation. The uh, the the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms used. Uh, I didn't even know this in, uh, until I. I started doing some research, they had their own special forces unit. Were you aware that ATF had a special forces unit like army rangers or Navy seals? (laughs) I didn't. Mm. Uh, And it turns out they did three days of training at Fort Hood um, um, in uh, close quarters combat before they carried out this, uh, uh, this raid. Uh, Why was that necessary? Right. They, uh, we found out later they had an invitation uh, the uh, special uh, investigator for the ATF had a, a personal invitation from David Korish to come and investigate and then look at inspect his weapons his, uh, his, his guns uh, before the raid and they turned him down and never t- took up uh, took up his uh, offer. Uh, the first time that um, the branch civilians ever saw the ATF was on the morning of um, February 28th when they showed up with 80 armed agents in a full-blown paramilitary raid. Uh, they, they had options, they had other choices. This is all in the congressional record. Um, the uh, congressional subcommittees eviscerated the ATF for, for basically going down this road of insisting on this paramilitary raid when in fact they had other, all kinds of other options that were much less dangerous and would have not imperiled the lives of all, what 130 people inside Mount Carmel. Wasn't necessary, it was not necessary.
3: So, could the, same, could the same thing happened today. Pardon, could the same thing happen today? Has anything changed? Uh,
0: I, I don't know if, if, if they've learned their lesson or not. Um, you know, we started to see some progress after Waco. Um, there was an incident about a year and a half after Waco called the Montana Freeman standoff. Um, and the FBI acted completely differently in this. They waited. They were patient. Uh, they didn't show, Didn't make a paramilitary showing with tanks. They stuck with negotiations. And that thing lasted 81 days. Um, and and the uh, those who were barricaded inside uh, this uh, ranch house um, eventually walked out. No one was harmed. No one was killed. They followed their, pro- their own protocols this time, right? Um, and it ended peacefully. And that's the way Waco could have ended had they followed their own protocols. So I was very hopeful at that time. And then after 9-11, it seems like we've had this, we've been going backwards in this reversion to this more paramilitary kind of operations now. And, and what's wrong with that? Well, it should only be used in very highly selective instances, and and what we see is that it's used widely for uh, um, carrying out all kinds of, uh, of very minor drug raids. For example, you you don't need a team of of, of thirty or forty or fifty uh, armed agents with Kevlar helmets and AR-15s and flak jackets to carry out a a, a, a drug raid on two people, right? In a in a house or something. Um, it, it, it's just overreach, egregious overreach, um, and it's not selectively used, and it's, uh, all the research shows that this kind of policing, paramilitary policing backfires and creates uh, um, all kinds of civil liberties violations. I mean, this is the kind of thing you'd see in third world countries or banana republics. You wouldn't expect to see it in, in, a, in a first world Uh, a highly developed uh, nation or society. And what do you see as the roots of that behavior? The drug war, going back to the early 1980s, the war on drugs, Um, what we began to see is a we have some. We have a law in the United States called the Posse Comitatus Law that was passed after the Civil War that separated the functions of military and and civilian law enforcement. Civilian law enforcement officers are are trained to uh, um, uh, to, to keep the peace. They take uh, uh, an oath to uphold the Constitution. We have uh, uh, laws like um, uh, that. That. that Require people, they require officers to um, to read the rights, uh, read uh, suspected uh, criminals of their rights. They have they have rights. They have a right to a trial by jury. They have a right to a defense attorney. Um, they have a right to the presumption of innocence. They have constitutional rights and guarantees. Not so in war zones, right? Military are trained to kill. Military have different kind of training. And so what we begin to see in the 1980s is the Reagan administration started to break down this separation and started to, to recruit and integrate military with civilian law enforcement in the name of fighting the drug war. And you have increasing uh, military, uh, civilian law enforcement integration throughout the decade of the 1980s and in the early 1990s. By the time we get to Waco, you have almost uh, complete uh, Uh, integration.
1: Wow. That's scary. That's scary. Yeah, it's great because I, I, you know, um, as a New Zealander slash Australian, um, I'm kind of mystified by how these processes work in America. And, um, yeah, and why so many people are so upset, you know, and the whole thing around First Amendment and the, the right to bear arms and all of these things are quite a, a mystery to those of us who don't live uh, in, in your country. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, wow, when you put a, a historical slash political context around the way you're doing it's, I can sense the social political scaffolding that created this. It's scary it's scary wow so so as an american just as an american how do you feel how does all of this make you feel stuart
0: well it 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 concerns me deeply um i teach classes uh in uh terrorism and political violence i teach classes in uh sociology of religion and these are lessons, these are things I try to get across to my students. That's not a, a huge impact, but I, I get uh, some satisfaction in reaching uh, the small groups of classes that I'm able, students that I'm able to uh, talk to. And they get it. It's not that hard of an argument to make. And uh, and the is powerful. Um, you can pull up, you uh, 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 photos of of Waco on the day of the uh, FBI assault and it looks like a a war zone you could you couldn't tell the difference between that and and, uh, places in Iraq or or other places that we had military uh, conflicts with the tanks you know the fire in the background the the destruction of the of, of the building there yeah it looks like a military war zone
1: I just want to um, kind of tease out what, what, one thought, you know, and this is very much from an outsider's perspective of of, of America. When you, you talked about the, the delineation um, between the police and the
3: and the military, that in fact the military are, are trained to to kill, and the police not so much. But um, the the the
1: vision we see of American policing is. There's a lot of uh, they seem to be causing a lot of death, destruction, mayhem, um, and uh, you know, gun happy, bullet happy. They also seem to be, you know, hell bent on killing others.
0: But but the reason for that is because of the, inter- the, the integration. Um, so that that now we have cross training with military and civilian law enforcement. Yeah. I live in a relatively small city of about 150,000. We have a, t- our, our uh, county sheriff has a tank, <laughs> you know, which I show, I take my students out to see and I, and I say, why do we need a tank? Why does Why does Beaumont, Texas need a tank, a military tank? Because they can get one, right? Because of the, the way in which uh, the military uh, transfers this kind of weaponry um, and um, uh, whatever you call it, contraband or whatever, to um, uh, local law enforcement when when they need to get a new uh, new models, right, or, or the latest uh, version of, of whatever that is, helicopters, tanks, what have you, and so um, you have this institutional uh, channel of, of transferring military. Um, equipment to law enforcement but you also have cross training so when when civilian law enforcement get their training part of their training is with uh, military people military personnel under the name of the drug war or domestic uh, now now terrorism as well Wow, has the tank been used yet nah they're never going to use it (laughs) it's just there for i mean it's like a museum piece right they're not going to use it wow
1: I, I'm ah uh, look I uh, <laughs> I don't know where to go with that piece of information my brain is scrambling to create new neural pathways in my head around why a sheriff would need a tank can you unpack that a little bit for us
0: well just simply that they can they, that it, it's free they don't have to pay for it and I guess um, Maybe uh, their the local SWAT team has, has fun driving it around the uh, training ground, you know, showing it off. I don't know.
1: But it seems emblematic of something. It seems symbolic of something. What, how, would you, how would you address that?
0: Well, think about this too. Um, we have incentives, financial incentives for ex-military, right? People coming out of, uh, of the army or the various military branches to go into law enforcement. We give them financial incentives to do that. We streamline the path for them to do that. So here are people who are coming out of military training, going directly into law enforcement in a time when you're already integrating military and law enforcement. So these are the guys who gravitate towards SWAT teams anyway, right? So, I mean, it, now we have a culture of paramilitarism, in, throughout police forces throughout the United States and even at local small metropolitan police departments I'm not talking about just the really large ones all of them it's a culture and, and, and try you, to reverse
3: that do you see any hope in reversing that do you see any public backlash uh,
0: uh, mostly I'm pessimistic about that but I'm just hoping that our voices are heard at some point I, I think we made a little bit of inroads with the Obama administration after um, there was uh, that incident in, um, right outside of St. Louis with Michael Brown, the bl- a black man being shot, uh, and then there were, uh, there were mass protests in the streets uh, following that um, incident. And, and the paramilitary police showed up in MRAPs. <laughs> you know what an MRAP is? It's, it's like a glorified version of a tank that we'd see in, in uh, Iraq. And, um, and the same thing, you got guys policing or patrolling the streets, holding automatic weapons, pointing them at people, which is in itself illegal, right? Um, and the photos from uh, the fallout of, of Michael Brown's uh, shooting by a police officer uh, I think really alarmed the Obama administration. They took a second look at this paramilitary policing, and he made some changes in the laws um, uh, and the ease with which the military could transfer equipment to um, uh, to police, among other things. But since uh, the Trump administration has come into uh, uh, its own, they, they've reversed all the Obama administration efforts to to to, 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 pop, to stop that. Um, I'm going to close the door here. My my wife and my granddaughter just showed up. Yeah,
1: we don't want them around, do we? <laughs> well, they're kind of loud. <laughs> Look, I, I'm just. This is fascinating to me, Stuart. I'm so happy to be talking to you because I've, i you know, I think many of us around the world really ponder, um, a, a intrigued, a saddened, mortified, shocked, horrified by by both the militarization that's occurring, but also the gun culture, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, the reliance on guns, the, the, you know, the call for guns, the need for guns. And that seems to be what Waco was precipitated around was we need to check your guns.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it's a, it was a gun raid. I mean, Waco was a gun raid. Um, and that set off um, a lot of these uh, uh, uh gun enthusiasts, a lot of the, um, I call them Second Amendment fundamentalists, uh, who thinks that, that 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 that's an absolute right. Every, every other right is secondary to to uh, their Second Amendment right. Um, but there's a little bit of history there, too, and I write about that in my book, uh, Patriots, Politics, and Oklahoma City Bombing. Uh, what we found out was that leading up to the uh, raid on Waco, that the ATF had carried out um, something like over 300 gun raids in a period of a year leading up to Waco, right? So this perception that the government was coming to get your guns thing, uh, which existed largely among a small faction of far-right militia, patriot group types, uh, or, or Second Amendment fundamentalists, then basically that narrative spread and seemed to have more credibility among a larger population. Um, so you have to see Waco in connection with or, or the DNA of the, of the ATF's efforts in the previous year um, leading up to, to Waco. And there was another incident uh, with a family called the Weaver Randy Weaver family in Idaho six months earlier, um, where uh, a federal marshal was killed Randy Weaver's son and his wife were killed in a, a, a gun raid um, in Idaho. And so uh, these 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 300 raids leading up to the Weaver incident, you had no deaths, but you had property violations. I think you had civil rights, civil liberties violations. And then you get the Weaver incident, and then six months later with three deaths, and then you in Waco you get what, 86 people dying? So it looks like an escalation. You could build a narrative or construct a narrative that, that there's an escalating uh, uh, effort by the government to come and get your guns. And, and that, that message seemed to resonate among a much larger population in the United
3: States. If we go back, uh, you mentioned before about being caught up in this in this kind of political uh, playoff as well. So you had the Republicans there using it as an opportunity. Do you imagine if the Republicans were in power at that point, whether there would have been a Waco siege situation, whether there would have been the same circumstances around it? Is it a bigger government kind of infrastructural thing?
0: Hmm... That's a great hypothetical. I don't I've never even thought about it that way. <laughs> David, you have any thoughts about that? And he does.
4: I personally don't I don't think they would have. I don't think that guns are a big issue when Republicans are in power. We see that with school shootings. Yeah. yeah. When Republicans are in power, um, everything you can have a school shooting in this country and it really sits unnoticed in Florida would be a prime example of that. Even with students rallying to their own cause saying, what are you guys going to do? Absolutely. Nothing was done. And it fell on deaf ears. So but, but
0: the Republican party of today is different than the Republican party of the past.
4: Uh, that's me, for sure.
0: I, I can think of one example. Um, the, the only reason- thing I- the reason that the ATF ramped up their uh, their gun interdiction in the early 1990s was because George H.W. Bush, who was uh, president at the time, was reacting to a, um, a, a spat of of mass shootings. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this, but there was a, a guy went into a, a Luby's cafeteria in East Texas with a automatic or semi-automatic weapon, mowed down a bunch of people. There was an incident in a McDonald's restaurant in California. There was another incident with a post office. We got the term going postal from the guy, the disgruntled postal uh, uh, worker who went in and after he was fired and mowed down a bunch of his former employers and employees and colleagues. And so it was George H.W. Bush who had his director of ATF look into these, what he called these, um, um, uh, kind of military grade weapons. And it was, it was under the Bush administration where they outlawed something or banned something like 40 different uh, military grade weapons at the time, including Uzis and AK 47s. So that was pre, that was before Clinton was in office. So that Republican party was a little different, I think. So, Could it have happened under a Republican administration, like, let's say, if Bush had been reelected? Possibly, yeah. Yeah.
2: And the NRA wasn't catching the kind of heat that it is now, too. The NRA was a far bigger lobby, I think. It's still a big lobby, obviously. But the NRA is catching more heat now than I think ever in the history of this country, that's for sure.
0: D- yeah, and don't. the NRA was, was uh, at least in the 1980s, up until the, the end of the 80s, they were largely a, a group of recreational hunters. And it was um, the Second Amendment fundamentalists started to take over the NRA and, and transformed the, the, the organization almost entirely. So that now, uh, and, and ever since then, the, the, uh, the more militant faction of, of, of the gun owners has dominated the NRA.
1: I, I just want to change, change. I just want to change tack uh, for a moment here, um, and talk a little bit, Stuart, uh, around the role of the media in all of this. What what role do you feel they played?
0: Well, they played a very important role, um, but they they. They were also manipu- heavily manipulated by, um, by the FBI's press briefings, and, and that set the tone for how Waco was covered after that. I, 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 I heard a lot. Of, one of the things I did in my research was um, I started keeping and collecting um, all of the articles that, uh, that were coming out of the Houston Chronicle, the Houston Post, and the Dallas Morning News, and then I had friends of mine, um, keep uh, copies of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I, and I photocopied all those articles and put them in a founded um, copy, a book. Uh, and it looks like a telephone directory. I still have that, by the way. So I could go back and read how, how this was covered in the, in, in the media. And going back and, and rereading all that, Um, you know, say six months later, or eight months later, I realized what bad coverage, what what bad journalism this was, but a lot of it was being fed to them by the FBI, who was who had more of an interest in uh, in manipulating the situation. I mean, they were engaged in a disinformation campaign.
1: (laughs) Why? Why were the FBI doing that?
0: Well, in the beginning, I think during the 51-day standoff, it was to ma- manipulate the situation, hopefully, to uh, um, in their favor, and to upset and disturb the people inside because they believed that if they could they could break off people from uh, Koresh, uh, the group would would fragment and, and fall apart, and this whole standoff or uh, uh, barricade operation would would dissipate. Um, uh, and they were getting advice from, they were listening to the wrong people, by the way. They were listening to uh, anti-cult uh, experts uh, like Rick Ross and others. Um, and then once this thing was uh, ended badly, <laughs> it was to cover their ass. Yeah, um, it, it, it was to say, well, we couldn't have done anything differently. And that's one of the reasons I put the book together was to say, yeah, this could have turned out differently. And this is how it uh this is the people they should have talked to these are the experts that w- would have given them more reliable credible advice and this is how it should have ended
3: right i have another sorry i have another hypothetical uh if if it was if we if we were facing the situation today and we had the we had the media environment that we had where we've had uh you know a, a good decade of digital disruption of uh uh, mainstream media being eroded by um, a whole lot of smaller players, and you've got um, you know access for people to share live streaming and that kind of thing. So, you, so potentially you've got a whole lot of footage from insides. You've got a whole lot of other uh, uh, media involved. Would we? Would there still be the same potential for that manipulation? Are we kidding ourselves when we think that we, you know, we have the truth at our at our hands now?
0: I think it would be more politicized. Um, I, I think you, you've got clearly um, um, divided, a divided country uh, with media outlets supporting these, these different factions. And so how that would come out, I don't know, but it would, it, it, I don't think that you get um, a master narrative. I think you would get competing narratives. And, and I don't know how this uh, would play out. It would be interesting
3: can I ask can I ask another question just around it's slightly different but just, just just as you talk about the militarization of of police is there a is there a kind of a social thing in there as well where um since nine eleven, uh, you know, it seems like there's been this big ramp up in uh in patriotism and respect for the soldiers and even and even respect on the police and the the, the firefighters, the first responders and that kind of thing. Is there some difficulty in uh in criticizing uh both the military and the police and, and, the, and the and the and the conversions of, of that as well within this context of you know, that's huge. This huge are, you, are you being, are you unpatriotic if you criticize?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very insightful. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, I, I definitely think that, um, 9-11 has had a huge impact here. Um, and as I said before, um, I, I thought that we were making some progress in, uh, in, um, uh, Mitigating or attenuating this 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 trend of paramilitary policing until 9/11, and then with with the uh, with the whole domestic uh, the whole terrorism uh, scare, um, uh, it, it seemed to give carte blanche to um, uh, to police. Um, I mean, if you look at the um, some of the laws that were passed right after that, it basically just gave the government to do all kinds of spying on, on American citizens and things that would have under other circumstances in different times created a huge outrage and pushback, but it didn't after nine 11. And of course, I think, uh, the agencies, law enforcement agencies, uh, uh, exploited this crisis to their advantage. Yeah.
2: Uh, we got a couple. You mind if we ask a couple questions, we get some stuff.
0: Right. Go for
1: it.
2: This is this is Eddie Oliver, by the way, Stuart. He's very excited to meet you. I get
1: that. Oh, yeah.
4: I don't know how often you hear this, Stuart, but I'm actually a big fan of your work.
1: <laughs> you don't ever hear it, yeah. And, and and Stuart, let me tell you, Eddie is a legend in his own right. <laughs> so that is high praise. From one legend to another, I think it's a it's a great meeting of the minds we have here. Anyone who's talking with it, you know, Eddie, this is high ground.
4: So, so, Stuart, my, one of my big questions is, as you talked about the executive branch of the government, I kind of want to shift gears and move into the judicial branch of the government. And your opinion on uh, Judge Walter Smith. Um, what, what I'm curious, because you've done more research on I'm this. Sorry. Yeah, he smiles. <laughs> you've done more research on this. So, I'm curious. Walter Smith and his bias, the judicial bias that he showed to be a one-off or do you think that's a trend in the judiciary in general?
3: No,
0: I think judges are very different. Um, um, some of them are, are, are extraordinary. Um, uh, they're, they're scholars. They're, they're, they bend over backwards to be fair. Um, so there's quite a bit of, of, uh, Diversity or variety uh, in judges, and 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 I think lawyers know this. You know, they'll they'll file a case in a certain court to 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 be sure that it goes before a certain um, a certain judge. In fact, there's a term for this. It's called venue shopping, right? Uh, with regard to Walter Smith, I, I, I had heard before I ever uh, saw him in action he was referred to as the hanging judge. So I knew we were in trouble. Um, uh, and I was—I uh, attended the uh, civil uh, case. I, I was uh, in Waco for the whole time uh, during that civil trial when uh, the uh, the survivors and the, their family members brought a wrongful death suit against um, uh, the government. And um, I sat in that courtroom and watched Walter Smith. And I knew we were in trouble after a couple of days. Um, I'll give you one example in particular. Um, um, Clive Doyle was called to testify uh, in um, in the trial, and when the government's uh, uh, attorney got up to question him, uh, it, it, it was vicious. It was really vicious, and he he even attacked Clive's religion, which I thought was was uh, out of bounds. Um, And uh, one of the defense attorneys objected, and Walter Smith uh, um, basically shut him down and allowed the the government attorney to uh, continue uh, attacking his religion. And then afterwards, uh, during the break, I was standing in the aisle there, um, not far from that same uh, government um, attorney. And Smith walked up to him during the break, patted him on the back and congratulated him for that line of question. Incredible bias, <laughs> incredible bias. And if, if you read the, 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 uh, the paper that I wrote on um, uh, the evidentiary hearings uh, and the, the evidence that, that I thought um, biased uh, the case, uh, in favor of the government, that, and some of the rulings that Walter Smith made, um, you can probably uh, ascertain where I where I stand on, on on the credibility, the fairness of that trial.
4: Funny you say that, Stuart, because I actually did read that paper, and so I'm also kind of curious. This is a little bit of a follow up question. When the uh, when the judge made those rulings, and and the Davidians ended up going to prison like basically when he reinstated, you know, they were found not guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. They were found not guilty of murder. And then he basically misused the weapons violation to reinstate not guilty verdicts, which when you're found not guilty and they still put you in prison, is about as unfair as it can possibly ever get going to trial. But I'm curious, what, what were your thoughts on the appellate court process leading up to it being unanimously overturned by the Supreme Court? You still have those lower courts that affirm that judge's decision. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, no, I think that uh, um, the, uh, was it, the Fifth Circuit in in, in uh, New Orleans? Is it the Fifth? Okay. Uh, the Fifth Circuit actually did reverse him, uh, which was surprising because the Fifth Circuit has a reputation for being the most conservative uh, court in the entire country. Um, and then it went to the Supreme Court and. Uh, That's my recollection. Uh, Now, um, am I wrong on that or am I uh, misremembering it? I I thought the Fifth
4: Circuit overturned a few of the charges and then but ultimately the weapons one that put them in 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 prison was ultimately unanimously overturned by the Supreme Court, if I remember correctly.
0: You may be right, Eddie, because it's been a few years since I went back and read that. (laughs) I wrote it 20 years ago. So uh, or something somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I may be misremembering it. Yeah. But the, the Fifth Circuit uh, has has a, a wide uh, reputation for being super, super conservative. So if they lined up with uh, Judge Smith, it wouldn't be surprising at all.
2: Yeah. I got a question killing me.
3: <laughs>
2: um, OK, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I don't even know if these guys know that we're gonna go here, but we're gonna go here. And I just read something in one of your papers about Bill Johnson, which fascinated me because Bill Johnson's the guy that me and I found out it was because I had long hair, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. That I wasn't indicted because I looked like a hippie and he figured a jury wouldn't want to indict a peace loving hippie freak. Swear to God, Bill Johnson told me he told me this at a cocktail party. I met him like 10, 15 years out. It was the weirdest night of my life. So my question, I was just reading your thing about Bill Johnson and him finding out about the pyrotechnic devices and having to go up the chain of command and skipping right to Janet Reno because no one wanted to give that information. What what can you tell us about that, specifically meaning the pyrotechnic devices found in the building that was denied for six years by the FBI?
0: All right, so so your question is... uh what exactly bill's uh, role in that or or just the fact that they? i'm did personally
2: it. curious about that i don't know if it's, if it's i'm personally very curious about that i don't know if it's right for the podcast or not but the pyrotechnic devices is what i want to get to what do we know about it what did you find out about it what's you know what's weird about the whole thing to you all
0: right so um th- there was a lot of talk afterwards uh, and you, you remember seeing the videos that were put together um in that uh Film Waco's Rules of Engagement that suggested that, um, that that the government were not only firing at you, at uh, you guys um, trying to come out um, in the back of that building, but also that they may have set uh, set fire to the building themselves. And so uh, there was a lot of questions about pyrotechnics and whether what kinds of, um, of um, rounds that were being used uh, that were being fired into Waco. Uh, and some of those um, that were being uh, uh, fired into to, uh, the building that that dreadful day um, uh, could be could have set uh, uh, started a fire, and so uh, that was denied. And uh, when defense attorneys over the years have tried to to that um, uh, lock, that storage locker, they were denied. And um, it wasn't until Bill Johnson somehow, without getting a, the proper approval or something, allowed some of the attorneys to go in and look and find those things. And he ended up getting fired for that, remember?
2: I do remember. Yeah. tell me that directly.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I, I, so, I, I, just a small question. He's the one that made the decision. That's Who, who's Bill Johnson? And, 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 and what role did he play in all of this? He was he assistant was, district
0: attorney. Was attorney. Yeah. And what does that mean?
1: He, he was prosecutor.
0: Uh, well, he, he had jurisdiction over that um, uh, uh, over the federal uh, district there in in Texas.
3: Right.
0: Jacob. Got it. Thank you. Hey,
4: Stuart, one other, uh, one other question I have. do off track, though. No, I'm staying on track. Hey, Stuart, one other question I have. I, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on uh, Agent Ballesteros and his reversal of the testimony? Like, he initially said the ATF fired first and then kind of backtracked. And then still, no, 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 it was the Davidians that fired I'm I'm wondering, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs>
0: I imagine he was looking at his pension and, uh, and, and whether he was going to continue to have a job or not. Um, did you find or,
4: anything in, in your investigation? Did you find anything in your investigations that kind of, you know, I don't want to ask a leading question, but did you find anything that, where you felt like maybe he was being leaned on or someone coerced him into changing his story?
0: No, but um, the inference uh, would uh, be highly plausible. And regarding the, uh, the, the 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 shooting, who shot first? Um, in the courtroom at the civil trial, I was sitting there when an ATF one of the ATF agents testified under oath that the first shots were fired by the ATF dog team to kill the Malamute and the pups. Those were the first shots fired, and and so I've always wondered why people even had a, a debate or argument about the first shots fired because the ATF admitted under oath uh, at the civil trial that they, they fired the first shots.
4: Okay, and have, I got another question for you. Uh, when the Treasury report was was released, it was kind of roundly criticized for being extremely biased. So that was kind of followed up by the Danforth report and Danforth's investigation. I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the Danforth Report. Do
0: you think it was impartial and unbiased? Uh, no, and I, I've I've actually written about that, but I didn't uh, I didn't publish that paper. Um, that paper ended up on uh, Massimo Introvigne's uh, chechner website. Are you familiar with that?
2: We will be. I will we be. Get off this call.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chesner. It's C E S N U R. Uh, And it's a, um, it's a website associated with his organization that 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 comes out of um, um, Torino, Italy. And um, I never got around to publishing that paper. He asked me if he could, he could uh, post it on his website. And, um, and so I said, yes. And so it's it's still there. I checked a couple of years ago. It's still there. So yeah,
2: right now.
0: Okay. So it's my, uh, it's my evaluation or assessment of the Danforth report. And as you can imagine, it's pretty critical.
1: For,
4: wow. for, for one who doesn't have that report in front of him right now at the moment, can you, can you kind of verbally cover, you know, a summary of what you thought?
0: Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, you can say no, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, you
4: can't I got a ten out of questions yeah.
1: anyway. So. Yeah, Eddie will push you to the limit, mate. You can you, you know, you can say no, fuck off, Eddie. You
0: know uh, listen, It's
2: already taken away from where I want to go anyway. I wanna go paratechnics and I wanna talk about the shooting, but that's I knew he would do this to me. Okay. So no summary or summary? No
0: Um we- read the paper because it's been too long since i wrote okay. it um, yeah that's fair I, I don't recollect my recollection is not that great these days
2: i can understand that actually all right so we talked about the pyrotechnics i got a really important question but before that i have another important question and i want to know about what you think about the flare tape and the flare footage because you did mention the rules of engagement i recently rewatched um the, the sequel waco a new revelation and i gotta say i it's incredibly powerful watching these documentaries the flare tape has bothered me because it fits in with with certain autopsy reports where people had bullet wounds in the ends of their chest it fits in with the fact that only nine people it's five came out of the front and the side of the building How come there wasn't a mass exodus at the back of that building? So I'm convinced that people were shot trying to escape. I just am. I just I'm convinced of it. I've seen the evidence. I don't see how the flare tape can be sunlight reflections like the government says because it is a thermal imagery tape. It wouldn't make sense for it to be sunlight reflections. So So,
1: so, so look, look, for for, for for the people who were listening, can you just give us a bit of detail about what the, f- because no one knows what the fuck you're talking about. So, what is the flare tape? We'll go, Stuart.
0: Uh, flare is forward looking infrared uh, camera using an uh, infrared camera. And it. Radiation. Mirrors, it, picks up, it picks up different signals, thermal signals. And. Um, the, the Danforth report tried to discount the uh, images on the uh, FLIR tape that appeared to show that government agents were firing uh, their weapons at Branch Davidians who were coming out of the back of that building. And they dismissed it saying the, those were just reflections of sunlight, but in fact uh, infrared doesn't pick up sunlight. Um, the, the, the technology, it's a, it's a misstatement or misunderstanding of the technology is what David's saying. And that was part of my criticism, now that I think about it, uh, when I wrote up the Danforth re, uh, assessment of the Danforth report. Yeah. And I, I agree with David, I think they were firing at, at people. So can you, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you enlarge? I
1: mean, that's a really critical piece of information. Can you just enlarge a little bit on that? Can you, uh, you know, either David and or you, David, talk about the, you know, the sequel to that documentary and the importance of that and what the implications of that are? Because this is a very critical piece of information for people to hear.
0: Well, it was existentially dangerous for the FBI to concede anything on that point. So they had to go to great lengths to uh, cover that up, um, and I'll, I'll take a lot of criticism for saying that. But I, um, you know, it's consistent with my analysis of of, of the uh, violations, egregious violations of their own protocols, um, and I'm convinced that um, that the agents there wanted to take this group down. Um, so uh, if you attach or add on um, these, uh, uh, this evidence of, of uh, the government agents firing at branch civilians in, in the back of the building to all the other things that they did, the 16 other violations of, of uh, 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 hostage, abu- hostage negotiation protocols, I don't think it's that really surprising. It would be kind of a logical extension of those things. You know, there, there's a culture in police too. I mean, going back uh, quite a, a long ways, that um, that the rules of engagement sometimes are suspended uh, when when a, when a suspected uh, uh, criminal kills a police officer. It's sort of like you, you cross the the blue line there, and so all the rules are off, and 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 the effort by the uh, by the police is to take this guy out. You know, forget the, the uh, <laughs> his constitutional rights or forget the rules of fair play. You take down one of our guys, we're taking you out. And I think there was some mentality of that in Waco because they, they kept talking about the so-called murder of ATF agents. Even though the jury found uh, that the Branch civilians were innocent of murder and conspiracy to murder charges, to this day, ATF agents and FBI agents will refer to the murder of the ATF agents by uh, Branch Davidians.
2: And that's why I refer to what they did, the murder of the six people, my friends that died on the inside of the building. Two of them killed by helicopters. So, yeah, um, murder can be used both ways. It's just funny how they can come in shooting and you're murdering them if you defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's simply how they look at it, period, end of story, even if that's not the case. So I guess it's important that we find out what the case is because, to me, if they shot people trying to exit the building, it changes everything about Waco. I think it is that important because they're saying that, number one, they claim the FBI did not fire a shot into that building during the course of the entire 51-day siege. That's a lie. And there's not, it's also not a mass suicide if you're being shot trying to escape a building. So it changes everything, the infrared, and the fact that they've denied it and called it sunlight reflections when a 14-year-old kid who's been hunting with his dad can look at that flare tape and say, that's, that's automatic weapons fire right there. It's pretty cut and dry to me. And the fact that the system has still protected itself throughout all that evidence. It really does blow my mind. I think it's a, it's a stunning achievement on their part—the fact that every person in America doesn't know about that flare tape and and is interested in it.
0: Well, they buried the evidence for years, and that helped, you know. And so it doesn't emerge until what the, the year the um, what, year 2000, when the when the trial was civil trial arose. Uh, so part of it is that people move on. It's in the past, so the interest uh, level uh, uh, declines. And so that's a strategy in and of itself, right? Bury it, people will forget about it. You know, the news cycle moves on to something else. Um, um, and it's, it, it's a, an effective strategy when they run into something like this where they, they uh, committed some egregious uh, um, violations. In the White House, they call that "throw it out with the trash."
2: They'll release something like that on a Friday after all the journalists have gone home. So, therefore, on Monday, there's new issues over the weekend, and it's never focused on whatever it is they want.
4: Speaking of <clears throat> speaking of egregious actions by the government, this is a, yeah, this will dovetail in there. Hey, Stuart, do you, do you mind talking about the the high levels of CS gas that were used? I know you've written extensively on that on a couple of the papers about how some of the people were literally gassed to death.
0: Yeah, uh, Eddie, I, I took all of that information, really, uh, from the Congressional Report. Uh, they had the, the, the researchers and the staff people um, to, to do the more uh, thorough investigations of, uh, of the use of CS and, um, and its uh, impacts on, on people, and especially in closed spaces. So um, that's not original to me. That was uh, material I drew largely from the Congressional Reports. Now I will say this: the Do uh, you remember that, um, that in the Department of Justice report they reached out to uh, um, um, a, a, a physician at Harvard? I'm trying to remember his his name. His first name was Allen, and uh, I can't remember Allen. his last. Allen Allen. Allen. No, no, no! It was a it was it was a guy. It was a professor of. Uh, it might have been psychiatry, but he was a he was a medical uh, uh, professional at Harvard, and they reached out to him and asked him to to uh, to write something as uh, like a an advisor a consultant in the case, and he uh, he was shocked <laughs> at their use of CS in in particularly in closed spaces and and said so, um, and that that obviously made them pretty uncomfortable, and he ended up not. His report didn't show up in the appendix of the Justice Department report. He filed his own port- report separately because he didn't want it to be manipulated. Wow, interesting.
2: I was trying to look. For- I thought that I had that name right here. Um, I have like five different of your papers up on my computer, so it's kind of hard to find the one. that better
4: ask the question. I'm going to go.
2: All right, you go for it.
3: Um, okay. that, sorry, that was oh, Alan-, think- Alan Stone, by the way. Alan
4: Stone. yeah.
2: What a genius! That's awesome. I knew I brought you guys in for a reason.
4: Hey, hey Stuart, do you mind talking a little bit about uh, the 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 contribution that the injection of CS gas played in the fire on the nineteenth, and what your thoughts on that are? That's a good question.
0: All right, so I um, in doing some just preliminary research, it wasn't that hard to do to come up with cases where the police themselves report of uh firing cs into a a building or into a home into a residence and and it landed on you know they they used the pellets and it landed on a sofa and the sofa caught fire and the building burned down (laughs) i mean wasn't that hard to find so for them to claim that you know um it wasn't uh couldn't have caused the fire or wasn't pyrotechnic seemed to me kind of silly um as if people wouldn't um do a little bit of research to, to to test the uh, the authenticity of that of that claim.
3: Wow, that's an incredible questions. I'm, I'm glad we brought the experts in. Um, I, I just want to get I want to get a little bit personal for a moment. I mean your your body of work is prolific. Um, you are you're reaching so many people and, um, uh, and and I think you're doing a lot to to reframe history. Can I can I ask how you how it's affected you personally. Like when you when you're when you around uh, this and you're, uh, you're researching this and you're rewriting uh, elements of this, but when you're starting to look at things, like even seeing Clive Doyle getting, you know, torn apart in front of Congress, when you, when you start looking at the flare tape and the CS gas, how does that start to shape you personally when you've got, you know, your, your, grand, your grandchildren in the next room how, is there? What's the personal link for you? Does it? Does it? What's your What's your hope for the future for your grandchildren? Shaped up Shaped around this.
0: Um. Well, I. Uh, it, it, it's terribly disturbing emotionally for me um, to to spend a lot of time in, in this uh, in this work. So I have to take breaks from it just to keep from being swallowed by it. Um, uh, I, I think the same could be said for, I've got a couple of colleagues like Kathy Wessinger who, who, who probably would say the same thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm not that hopeful about the future. I'm actually quite cynical about the future. And um, so I, I have to be careful what I tell my granddaughter. <laughs> I don't want her. I don't want her to color the, the possibilities of uh, of change and, and hope uh, in, in the future. But um, yeah, it 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 sends me into a dark place to spend a lot of time um, w- with this body of work. Um, so I, if I take periodic breaks from it, um, it, it it helps me to maintain uh, um, a balance. Um, I guess that's the only way I know to respond.
3: I've got a four-year-old daughter, and and I think sometimes I'm cynical also about the future. Can you give me some advice in terms of how I might prepare her and, you know, even some tools along the way?
0: Well, uh, a child's uh, environment is is relatively small. I mean, their world is encapsulated in... um, um, by family and, and close friends and school and so forth. And so I try to stay in that world. Uh, I try not to, to jump into issue, policy issues and, and larger issues uh, uh, very often. Um, for example, my daughter is, um, um, my granddaughter is 13, and she's in, uh, she was, she just graduated from seventh grade. She goes into eighth grade. So she's in middle school. Um, she's, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, she knows my politics and she knows my daughter's politics and, and, and mine are, are pretty much similar. And, um, so, uh, when she goes to school and, and just repeats things that she's heard from me, um, um, or even some of my colleagues I, I, in the summertime, she spends a lot of time up in the department in my office talking to my. Uh, colleagues, and and we're all kind of on the same political wavelength. Um, so it's highly critical of, uh, say, a Trump administration and Trump policies. And when she uh, even mentioned something like that at her school, uh, most of her friends have very conservative Republican parents, and, and uh, she's been ostracized. She's been alienated, uh, kind of a pariah for, for e- even saying anything critical of uh, of the Trump administration. So we've learned uh to try to keep the politics in the family uh and be uh, be discreet about where we where we talk about our 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 (laughs) political (laughs) leanings uh uh, particularly with her
3: do you see any glimmers of hope you know um I guess this will kind of cancel it out, but we, we we're recently going through a process where the uh, the shooter for the Christchurch uh, mosque attacks is going on trial, um, and on the same day that that happened, uh, we had uh, teenage teenagers uh, protesting and marching in the streets in our in our major cities around the inaction uh, of our government for climate change, and that was part of a global initiative where. Where uh, skill kids were were coming out. I mean, is there is there hope within that that there will be uh, a new generation of change coming through that will wash out some of um, some of what's been going on potentially?
0: Yeah, the future is is that generation, and um, I, I marched with uh, with uh, college students and some high school students uh, last spring on the second anniversary of the parkland shootings and um, it, you know you, you you do garner some hope um, they do have energy and, and, and they're hopeful and you don't want to uh, uh, you, you don't want to discourage the hope that they that they have um, you know I was uh, I was in Oslo Norway uh, uh, from April to just last week just got back and um, you know what a a different world that is up there I mean it's a um, also it's very green green economy electric cars everywhere you didn't see any pollution I didn't see any obese people I didn't see any guns I thought what a different world to live in um, in in these different cities around the world where um, people think uh, more constructively and hopefully about the future and you can see that they they manage their resources so much better it should be a a template or an exemplar for us Um, but you you come back here and you're fighting these uh, uh, deep pockets of lobbyists and and, uh, special interests It's, it's it's really tough
3: have you ever thought about moving Coming oh, to Australia, well, New Zealand, the Pacific—all
0: the time. I think about moving all the time. I've got family in Canada. I've got um, I've got a, a, a sister-in-law, niece, nephew in in BC, and and my my mom and dad and my brother are 14 miles from the Canadian border in Washington State. So yeah, I think about it all the time.
3: Just wanna um, I want to go back to something that that Julian asked about about what your purpose Yes, I know he does ask some good questions occasionally. So, um, but you mentioned, you mentioned almost this this kind of runaway train of events that's kind of, that's formed your, that's formed your career. When you, when you, when you pull back and you think about it, do you have, do you have a thought for what your legacy will be for what your body of work will contribute to?
0: No, I'm not there yet. Um, um, I, I try to stay busy. Um, and I've got colleagues who, whose body bodies of work are much more impressive than mine. So, um, I always feel like I, I, I never reach, uh, any kind of apex or our finish line or anything like that. Um, um I, I'm, I'm often surprised when, when people refer to my body of work as, as, as something that's impressive because, um, um, I, I, don't, I don't go there. I don't allow myself to go there, I guess. And I, I also, I, um, I still have a lot I want to do, right, in the future. So I guess someday I'll, I'll stop and, and, and look back and, and take the time.
3: Are you tempted into politics?
0: Uh, not where I am in Texas. It, it would be too difficult. Yeah.
2: Being a liberal? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, being being blue in a red state's pretty tough. Although I think we're 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 shifting gradually, um, and I think eventually we will be blue, but it, it may be another ten years away.
2: Did you know something, Julian? I have one more, but I can wait till you guys go. I, I don't want to hog Stewart's attention.
3: No, you go for it,
2: Andre. You're on. Julian, you're on.
1: Yeah. You're muted. Oh, yeah, I just want to stay with this with with, with this thread for a little bit. because um, one of the things that Andre and I have been talking about is there's 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 the content, but then there's the context. And there's the more universal from you know from, from this. And uh, sure there's a legal battle and a social and a political battle. But I think that what really interests me is 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 human development, and that we grow through crisis, and that this certainly ha- has and continues to be a critical moment that remains unresolved in the in the psyche of those who have been involved, and my sense is in the psyche of America, and even in the psyche of the world, you know I. I talk to people about Waco, it's 26 years afterwards, and here we are in Sydney, Australia. People know about it, people think about it, people have an opinion about it, you know. Um, and so much of that opinion has come from misinformation, and to me it's around the, the role of the media. Um, I'm not even sure what my question or comment is at, at this point other than there seems to be an incredible damage done to you know, human beings ability to envisage a bright future based around these sorts of dynamics and to me um, pain and cynicism um, in these really are linked to a bigger broader vision that is not finding expression in the world so stuart i'm wondering what what is the vision that that really fuels you that sits behind this you
0: no know, i uh when i started my career um back in the early 1980s uh, i was really fascinated by uh, some of these new religious movements uh, as social experiments you know utopian or social experiments to create sort of small worlds in which they could try try to live out something different than the larger world and they were disenchanted with the culture and they were disillusioned by politics and so forth and so I saw them as really important social experiments Um, and yet I think because of this all this cult language this anti cultism way in which the media have, 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 have got a hold of it and beaten these groups down and, and made it harder and harder for these groups to survive or exist or even innovate, um, um, it's it's a great disservice to to the larger society. Because I think we can learn things from these these, these social experiments and, and giving them the freedom and the liberty to, to do that, to experiment, you know? Beautiful, just, yeah. beautiful,
1: beautiful. No, no, no. Quite often uh, what Andre and I have found that as we talk about Waco to people, one of the first responses people have is, oh, yeah, that was that cult, wasn't it? What would you say about that,
0: Stuart? Well, I've I've spent a career trying trying to refute this idea of a cult and challenge people to think about how they use that term, right? So, um, the first thing that, that I always say is, uh, really a cult. So how would you define a cult? And of course they never can. They, they, they struggle and they, they, they uh, spout some kind of uh feeble definition, which is, is easily, um, um, deconstructed if you will. <laughs> uh, and they find themselves without a, a way to, to define a, a term that they use routinely. Um, so I, I, I do my best to try to get people to think about, um, uh, uh, groups, these groups differently, uh, use different terms, minority religion, non-traditional religion, uh, non-official. There are lots of terms you could use in place of cult because the cult is a slur. It's not really a definitional term. It's like calling an African American, a nigger. It's a slur, right? Um, you don't use the term unless you mean it, mean it in a derogatory way. How should they describe them? Minority religions, new religions, non-traditional religion. There's lots of terms that we use. Scholars use these all the time. Um, Now, the problem for scholars is that we write to ourselves and we speak among ourselves in kind of a small group, kind of an ivory tower, and so it doesn't reach the larger audiences and we need to do a better job of, of, of making our message to the public rather than just talk among ourselves. Thank you. Um,
1: that was it for me. David, always, back to you, mate.
2: I've always looked at Crash and this whole thing, even coming into this early on, as what a social, it's funny using the word social experiment. I love that. I'm going to try using that every day. And I've used it in the past because I've always viewed my experience as this great social experiment. Coming into it and finding out that slowly over time that, you know, David Crash is the father of what appeared to be all these single women. At first, it's like, He's pretty cool to let all these single women hang out and just take care of them. then you find out that they're all his kids. Okay, well, mm-hmm. and my, as a the 23-year-old musician was like, how can he make that happen? I can't even keep one girlfriend, let alone two happy. How the hell does this even occur? So I always looked at Waco as a social experiment. And I had to see this experiment to the, to the end. I never viewed it as a cult. I have definitely reviewed it as a religious group. But the term social experiment hits me on so many deep levels concerning Waco in this. That's, it's, I'm gonna use it every day now, thank you. I mean, I, I know I've used it in the past, but it's one of those things that it's gonna hit you at just the right time for you to compute in your head and go, oh yeah, yeah. Because that is really how I always view this, was a, a great social experiment, for for good or bad. And it's been a crazy wild ride, that's for sure. So anyway, I got one more specific, real specific question for you, and it's, during the 51 Day Siege, what most people don't understand, everyone asked. we do the big three here. Who fired the big three questions? Who fired first, why didn't y'all come out, and who started the fire? So if you get up there in front of an audience that are coming to Mount Carmel and you forget everything, remember the big three, and I promise you're gonna cover a lot of material. So in the second one, why didn't y'all come out? Now I'm trying to, what I wanna do is, I'm getting ready to do it. Um, sorry guys a documentary and in the documentary i want to spend a lot of time of the 51 day siege that's what was happening behind the closed doors with the negotiators and then what the tactical commanders were saying the following day um every time they gave a press conference sometimes was 100 percent contradictory and it seemed like very often during that 51 days that the tactical commanders were saying things to piss us off they were saying things that were in, in, in staunch, opposite of what we had discussed with them the prior day in our negotiations. So I don't. I think that needs to be looked at, here's what I'm trying to say Stuart, in, in, in everything that you've looked at between the negotiators and the tactical commanders, what stands out as being infuriating? What stands out to you that you have seen that's just like, wow, is that wrong?
0: So that's, that's a great question, and um, the the answer is that they adopted a psychological warfare strategy with you guys. So the, the, the contradictions, the carrot and stick approach, the, um, the, the recording of the, of the loud sounds, the stadium lights, all that stuff was part of this ideology or this technique, psychological warfare that, that had been used in other countries on terrorist groups, and they were treating you guys like a terrorist group. And um, uh, if you look up and, and do a little bit of research on psychological warfare, it'll explain a lot of what was happening to you. They, they were lying to you. <laughs> they were giving you disinformation. They were telling you one thing and then go before the, the press uh, briefings and, and tell the media something completely different, right? And it was designed to upset you. It was designed to disturb you, and make you uh, mad and angry, right? That was the whole point. And they thought by doing that, it would, it would create fragmentation, and you guys would just start fighting among yourselves and, 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 and come out.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what they did, exactly. I mean, it happened time and time again. Now, one example that I use here is there was a day when they were during the crime scene, or what they call removing debris from the front of the building. And there was one day where they ran over Paul Fattis Al Camino, And everyone was looking out the window because it's not every day you see a tank run over someone's car. The kids were looking out the window with us. It just happened. Of course, Who isn't going to be interested in watching them destroy property, your property, right in front of you? The next day, the tactical commanders got to the um, press conference and they said, we're removing debris. They didn't say destroying the crime scene. We're removing debris from the front of the building. And we're horrified to see that the Davidians are using their kids as human shields and putting them up in the windows. And it was just like, oh are you you know, it was it was so frustrating. That's one small example from just one day. That's you know, that's pretty powerful when when they're lying about you and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't defend yourself. Well thank you for yeah.
0: Do you remember anything
2: specific? I'm wondering if you remember anything specific that you felt stood out of what they may have said or done that you believe was a lie. And maybe you didn't, I have access to negotiation uh, transcripts. I don't know if you did or not.
0: Yeah, I I do. Um, So there were so many lies, it's kind of hard to pick one out. Um, Exactly.
2: That's why I have a problem with remembering them all. I'd like to get one additional one as my point.
0: (laughs) Oh, my. Um, Let me think for a second. Well, I, I, uh, when, when the children were sent out, not David's children, but the other kids that came out, um, they immediately started reporting how abused these kids were, and they were talking about um, um, all kinds of, of crazy things um, that I, I find it hard to believe that these kids would have had that kind of story to tell about their own parents or about um, about their experiences inside. So. But you can retell a child's story, or you can spin it in such a way as make it sound dark and nefarious. Um, it was troubling that they they were attacking Korish as this liar and um, uh, Bible babble kinds of stuff. Um, they were they were they were using ad hoc attacks on him um, pretty viciously during these press briefings. Um, uh, in order to again to create to make you guys upset to, to, to make you angry um, and to uh, create as much chaos as they could uh, for you inside not karma
2: Great, that's one of the things I want to focus on in upcoming things I, I really want to be able to put together specific incidences so people can maybe see understand the frustration level because people don't get why we didn't come up. We're shot at, six so of our people die. They instantly start lying about us. They instantly start destroying our property. And people wonder why we didn't come out. I just can't imagine other people would come out under similar circumstances. So, David, I just put that into a sound bite.
1: David, yep. so why didn't you guys come out of the building?
2: Well, there are several We didn't want to, we were scared. Um, the first people to come out were nine, nine of the, four of the grandmothers that came out with children, women in their 70s and 80s. They put them in the five-point jackals, the yellow robes, and charged them with conspiracy to commit murder against federal agents. What kind of message is that sending to the people inside? Conspiracy here, if they were have proven that, that would have been the death penalty for some of the people. So they're going to charge the grandmothers with conspiracy to commit murder, and then they're going to say, now why don't you guys come out, especially young men? Yeah, sure, uh, that's what I want to do. I want to go and, and uh, you know hang, hang out on, on death row for the rest of my life until you fry fried me. Sure, let's do that. Or we can stay in this building that's ours anyway, after being attacked. You know, that's just one point. Many other points throughout the course. Every time they lie about you to the public and the press, we know they're, we're, that we're being demonized. So what fate awaits us when we go to jail? You know the stories about jail, about going to prison? Well, how much worse for people that are quote unquote child abusers that's not a very appealing that's not a you know that's not a very appealing way to go for us to just come out give up and go out to the authorities
1: so and what we were, did, so so what did you see the alternative was
2: the alternative basically um Really we wanted, we wanted the press, we just wanted to be able to tell our side of the story and be able to have another focus on it. When Tabor and Arnold came up with their plan through Ron Engelman for Kresh to write the Seven Seal Manuscript and then come out, that was a major thing for everyone because Kresh writing the Seven Seal Manuscript out, he could have been able to show the scholars that he had a valid message, which is I think really one of the biggest things he wanted was validation, if you will, I think. You know, there was a part of David that didn't care, that just he was himself and that was it, he was gonna teach his message. But he always believe it or not, he always cared about people.
1: He always worked. So David, why didn't didn't you come out and what was the alternative you were working with?
2: Okay, I personally didn't come out because I didn't wanna come out without the rest of the group. I was definitely not gonna come out on my own. I believe that I was on on a far more spiritual path I believe that this was uh, the, the will of God, if you will. It was The scripture was coming true right in front of me. Why would I turn against my face? And it wasn't about David Koresh. Why would I turn my face against God and give him the finger and walk out and go to the authorities? When I'm with what I consider to be inspiration, I'm, I'm, I'm in a place where they understand the living God scripturally. To me that was it. I I could not have walked away and looked in the mirror and lived the rest of my life. I knew that I had to go through that experience even if it meant my life. I I couldn't have turned away from God. And again, it wasn't David. It was seriously the scripture that he was showing is what was powerful to the people in there. Nobody worshiped David Koresh, none of us. You know, we thought that he had a message and he was inspired to teach that message, but we understood the distinction between a divine authority and David Kresh as a person or a human.
3: Um, I've just got one. Why
0: why didn't the uh, uh, hundreds of uh, 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 Jews uh, come out of Masada? True. I mean, sometimes you just take a stand based on your beliefs and... It's a risk and it may be your life, but if you believe there's an afterlife or you believe that your uh, your your faith is being
3: tested then um, You you behave accordingly.
2: I love you Stuart, right?
3: I Don't I don't have anything. I don't have anything important to add to that Um, but I would say I would say thank you very much, Stuart. It's been an utter privilege uh, to, to have your insight and to, um, uh, to, to, to be able to talk to you about this and, and to be able to watch you talk to uh, David and, and Eddie about this as well. It's incredible. Um, I do have one more hypothetical question, though. So say in 10 years, uh, when you're running for governor of Texas, what would your, what would your slogan be?
0: I, I I don't even think of those terms. I don't think of running for office. Um, I, I certainly get behind somebody I believe in, um, but um, yeah, I I don't think like a politician. I don't think um, I don't like the sloganeering anyway. I think it's cheap and and uh, um, it, it, it's it's uh, it's some kind of um, shortcut to to real policy. But then again, you know. People aren't all that interested in lengthy policy walks, uh, speeches. So um, uh, probably w- a good reason why I shouldn't run for office. <laughs> okay. And
3: I'm not very good at lying. Yeah, I think the chem- I think the campaign's going to be in trouble. I think we need to do yeah. some work around.
4: Yeah. Okay. Hey, Stuart, I have one last question for you. you. You didn't really answer my question on the Danforth report, so this is where you get to redeem yourself. <laughs> really? That's a good yeah. <laughs> How would you compare and contrast what happened to Waco with what happened in Jonestown as a sociologist and through your investigation?
0: Um, so I think, uh, I think Jonestown was a, uh, a mass suicide slash Homicides. The that, that evidence is pretty clear that um, you know Jim Jones had this ritual of uh, uh, with the Kool Aid that they went through this ritual a number of times, not knowing whether the Kool Aid was actually poisoned or not. Um, um, they were prepared to to take their lives uh, in this kind of radical uh, expression of their of their faith. Um, I don't see, uh, and I've argued against the idea that uh, that Waco was a suicide, mass suicide. I don't think it was a mass suicide. I mean, I think once the once the Davidians were cornered in uh, the kitchen area and the tanks were on top of them and they were experiencing the heat of of some of those flames, we had uh, certainly evidence of, of people taking gunshots. Um, and that was more kind of a mercy killing or um, you know, to, to relieve themselves of, the, of the, uh, the horrible heat that they must have been experiencing. Or you had other people who were simply comatose from all the CS gas they had been breathing. Um, but I, I don't generally define, um, and, not, and there's not an, a consensus on this. I have some very uh, close colleagues that I respect who, who, who disagree with me on this, but I don't, I don't see it as a, a mass suicide wake up that is one
2: follow-up and then i'm good um we're interviewing kathy wessinger next week which i'm very excited about a colleague of yours obviously know very well and i guess my question is what do you feel as a colleague of hers should i ask her or should we talk to her about
0: well uh, following up on what i just said um um ask her about um uh the uh, mass suicide because i think she leans more towards uh um, the, the fact that uh, it, it may have been a mass suicide not until uh, you guys were backed into a corner but, but um and provoked by uh, by the government but I think she leans more that direction than I do. There's a difference between the way we have uh, concluded our uh, our studies. What do you think her most important work has been? Oh, she's got a whole body of work. It's very important. And, um, you know, she's doing some of these uh, interviews that she's recorded and posted up to YouTube as well. Have you seen some of them?
2: Yeah, yeah, they're phenomenal.
0: Yeah, yes. And she did the oral histories with uh, with Bonnie and with Clive um, and, and Sheila. So we have those. Uh, that Those are forever documented. I think that's really important that she did that. Mm. Great.
1: Well, yeah, just... Um um, kind of one of the, th- the things we've talked about, and um, David and Andre, it's really come come back to me very strongly this week is that whilst we do the podcast, which is, you know, will be a series of, um, you know, uh, edited interviews, uh, one idea we had talked about was actually creating a website, which is a repository for, and, uh, you know, Stuart, I'd love to know. Each, could that be a place where we could put, you know, the work that you have done? Would you be okay? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so that this is where we could house all of these interviews in their larger context. We could store them there. And, David, it would be like this would be your website that we would help you to create. So it could be the online access to your story. So it's not just a half-hour, 45-minute show. We can actually have these interviews placed somewhere in in full, so people can have access to all of this raw conversation. And, of course, they get to meet, you know, the legendary Eddie in this process. And in
4: all all
1: his glory, you know. (laughs) That's right. Flick the hair back. This is your rock star moment, Eddie. (laughs) So yeah, so I just wanted to, uh, I guess, tell you the, um, the vision and and you know, I guess, finishing up our conversation with you, um, just kind of want to revisit the reason why I'm I'm doing this is, um, I I was one of the people who who swallowed the media Kool Aid around the the storyline of the cult. I for 25 years. Uh, 25 and a half years. Believe what the media said that they are a bunch of nutbag, crazed Christians seduced by this uh, figure, David Koresh. And it wasn't until I saw the um, the TV series Waco, which talked about the ATF and the FBI and the final, you know, the clash between them and how the FBI controlled the media narrative that I went, fuck. I have really gone hook, line, and sinker, and that is so counter to my personal beliefs, and which is why I, I reached out to David. I had to, I tracked him down on Facebook. I just wanted to offer him a personal apology. Uh, one, for, for believing what I believed, and then two, just human to human to say, I am so powerfully moved by what's happened to you. And then one thing led to another, and that's really what led to us, you know, Andre and I and David creating this podcast. And then this project, which I think is kind of expanding to create a container for, you know, this is what really happened. You know, through the mouths of the people who were directly involved, not through the media, you know, the mediator of of a, Uh, you know of a media which has its own agenda let's let's go to the real stories because my my big concern is the role of media in today's world and how the world can be turned uh, based on who's telling the story so yeah and i like andre i want to really thank you stuart not just for today but everything you've done around this you know and 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 your commitment as a fellow human being to the telling of the truth uh and to be willing to peel back you know the layers to get to the essence of this and and i see the the difficulty that it has caused you the pain that you carry uh, around so you haven't spoken about it um you know i can feel it and just want to acknowledge you for your courage and your commitment to to this because i know it means a tremendous amount to david and to the survivors of waco and all of us who seek a sense of justice you know um even if it's purely internal and affirmation as fellow humans that this should not happen and it has and how do we how do we move on
0: Well, thank you for your effort, too, to to, to put this together and uh, and to get this uh, in front of uh, more people uh, to influence their thinking or or force them to rethink what they think they know. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So, hopefully, we'll, our paths will cross again in, in this project. I have a funny feeling they will. I have a sense that we're going to invite a few of you to come on to like almost like a panel discussion. And so we'll uh, keep you um, kind of alert uh, to that. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, it, it, enjoy yeah, your Yeah. Wonderful. So,
3: thank you so much. Man.
2: Right. I appreciate that.
1: Thank you. Thank,
2: you. thank you. Bye, guys. See you next week.